This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Hey everybody, this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Build Phase. You ever drink Vitacoco? No. Coconut water? No, no, no. Ugh. What, what is it? Coconut water. Oh, everybody and their mom loves that shit Stuff's out disgusting. here. disgusting. I don't understand it. My wife drinks it like crazy. I was leaving the gym and they have like a bunch of coconut water at the gym. And then they have some that seem like a good idea because it's like here's coconut water plus like coffee and chocolate. So like this – it's not going to taste like, so I was like, Oh, I'll try this cocoa cafe mocha thing. Right. Like I hate coconut water, but it's supposed to be super good for you. But it's like enough coffee and chocolate in this and it'll taste fine. No. Awful. Just, just miserable. But it's like three fifty for like this tiny, tiny little thing of coconut water. So I was like, I'm going to hate every second of this, but I'm going to drink the whole thing. Ugh. What's the deal with coconut water? Why is it supposed to be so good for you? High in potassium, I guess. It's like... You could just eat a banana. Yeah, bananas are gross, too. What? Yeah. Oh, all right. I don't really care for coconut to begin with. No, me neither. So I wouldn't drink coconut water, especially 350 a pop. Yeah. I'm going to try another one tomorrow <laughs> to see if maybe the vanilla one's better. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. That's, that's going to be worse. Yeah. I, I kind of feel, feel like it will be. Yeah. The good thing is, like, my, my expectations were so low. Like, it took me a while to realize how gross it was. Because <laughs> I, <was like, laughs> I was like, you know, I had it in front of me and I was like, oh, God, coconut water. This is going to suck. And then I drank a little bit and I was like, oh, hey. That's not actually, I was like, that's, that's fine. That's okay. And then I'm like walking to work and I kept like every sip was just like a little bit worse. It's like, uh, crap. Wait. <laughs> that's just a good analog for life. Right yeah. There. Just set your expectations low and then it takes longer to realize that it sucks. <laughs> that's pretty negative. Yeah. That was very, <laughs> that was very... <laughs> I didn't mean for it to end up that negative when I started talking. I was just trying to be funny. It got real dark. Oh, man. It's weird recording on a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. It was weird having it be dark outside when I get into the office. Is it that dark there now? No, it's it's bright now, but I got in at like 7.15. So, Brian Iris. So he wrote on, I just saw it this morning in my Twitter feed, or RSS, I don't remember. But basically he wrote a blog post for the Tumblr Coco Tumblr about saying that he doesn't prefix category methods. And he was inspired by Nick Lockwood, who said that he didn't either. And kind of the argument for not prefixing is that they're ugly essentially, and that they don't actually save you. They don't actually save you that much in terms of, so like the reason you would prefix them, the argument for prefixing them is to prevent namespace collisions 
between your code and Apple's code or your code and other third-party code because we don't have namespaces. Prefixing categories is theoretically for that, but one of the things that you said that I hadn't really thought about before is that if you create a subclass, you're opening yourself up to potential naming collisions by defining any method on any subclass because if they add that method to NS object or UI view or any of the kind of common superclasses, then you could run into a problem there as well, which is kind of an interesting, I hadn't uh, thought of that before. I think he has a good point. Even if you were going to end up with a collision, it's only going to happen probably in a major release and you're going to have the beta period to get that worked out anyway. It's usually unlikely that they're going to drop new methods on you in say 7.1 maybe but it's unlikely that anything they're going to add is going to collide at all it's, it's usually in the bigger releases and you have time to sort these things out anyway i agree that they're ugly i know but did you get hit with the i mean did you added first object to ns array right right and so what did you do for ios 7 when first object became public None of my projects use that. Category. Well, the, well, the project, yeah, the project I've been on haven't used that category. I didn't pull that in on this project that's on seven. So that's where that that hit us last time, right? I mean, that's the big one. Like everyone adds first object. I think everyone always had added first object to NSRA because it's a no brainer method and it was easy to implement. It took like two seconds, and so then iOS seven came out and it was like, crap, you know, that's a straight up naming collision. So then I went through and prefixed all of our category methods, all of them. Every every category method on every object that we didn't own, I prefixed. And it's like a little uglier, but one of the things like it's uglier, but it also kind of helped me compartmentalize what was happening. You know what I mean? Like Every time I saw a category method, then I was aware that it was a category method. Right. So you don't start to conflate what what comes with this class. What have I added to it? Right. And I kind of actually liked that. I kind of liked being able to just say, um, just mentally, like just glancing at something, you know, oh, okay, this is a category. This is, you know, that there, that's an official API method. That's something that I've kind of tagged on to it i don't know i i think one of the things that he says is uh nick lockwood basically wrote you know that you know he if he adds my method to ns string you know that he likes ns string my method but he doesn't like ns string T-L-A underscore my method, right? He doesn't like the prefix version. If he's going to do the prefix version, he'd rather just do T-L-A lib my method and then pass in the string. Yeah, but then it has an argument. Right. Which defeats the purpose. Yeah, a little like, bit. I think, I think that's getting overly semantic just to avoid having a prefix and an underscore on your method name. Yeah, I don't necessarily think that it's that. Because like my method, let, let's think of like a better a better name. Maybe like camel case string yeah, yeah. as something you add to string. If you're going to pull that out and make it a class method that takes a string, how are you going to name that? Right. Camel case string with string. 
I mean, if you're following yeah. convention, that's oh. what you'd end up naming it. So it actually gets worse. Yeah. I I kind of I, I don't know. Yeah, like I said, like I, it's 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 a. I totally get what they're saying about adding subclasses, you know, or adding methods to superclasses, right? And I totally get, you know, later on he says that one of the big benefits of prefixing categories is that, um, you know, third – so, like, you and I are developing two different bits of code. You ha- add a category method. I add a category method. It's the same category method. Now we have another naming collision, right? So that's one reason, you know, all my stuff would be prefixed GF. Yours would be MA so they wouldn't conflict. And we could use them side by side. Right. Well, when you get these collisions, the code doesn't even compile, right? Right. You get, what, duplicate, duplicate I think it's method duplicate declarations? Symbols. I thought symbols were for, like, types. I, I, I think it's it, it's the same thing, Yeah. basically. So it, at least it's not going to compile and then just have unexpected behavior at runtime. Now, for that reason, I'm back to not wanting to prefix. <laughs> I'm kind of on a downslope with categories recently i think i got burned out on them a little bit in my last project i started switching some stuff to factory classes you know what i mean so like instead of like with that static table view stuff that i was talking about we were talking about a few weeks ago yeah instead of adding class methods to that cell class that generated static or that that built default versions of the cell you know what i mean like we had a cell you know i'm going to use this cell in five different places and i know it needs to be set up like this so instead of creating a category method on the cell which is it seems like a relatively typical thing that you do right you'd say like my cell default profile cell that kind of thing you know what i mean and it would hand you back a pre-configured cell i created a specific class that didn't have state it was just a factory class you know so it just had that default profile cell it was like called static cell factory kind of a thing and it just had that cell factory method on it but it kept it out of a category i think that works as long as everything is well named and you really understand that you're getting back a cell yeah a ui table view cell or something of the like I, th- I think the people the reason people add them as categories is for that sort of like hint like oh this is on ui bar button item this is a this is a fully configured bar button item and not some ambiguous button of some type yeah i don't know i think that's i feel like that's a little less semantic than just I don't know. I'm kind of leaning away f- from factory methods inside categories and leaning towards specific factory classes for those things. So having a configured bar button item factory class that returns specific ones, you know. But from your perspective, it's it's almost like UI buttons button with type because it's a category. You're just adding that method right to it true and like the, in this case it doesn't take an argument it just gives you back this fully formed thing a little yeah because of the way categories work where once they're loaded they're actually available everywhere and the only thing you're doing by importing the category is telling the 
compiler that is available because of that like i'm i'm acutely aware of that you know i'm i'm always aware of the fact that anything i add to a category like it's it's not just being used in one place it's actually available system wide at that point and so it feels like a lot of times I've, i i feel like it's polluting a little bit i want to say polluting the namespace but that's not right it's kind of like polluting the API, you know what I mean? Like you're just adding methods that are only going to be used in one place, but you are actually adding them globally. Where do you draw the line then between adding a category and using a factory? Is it when you have like configuration to do? Like so it's more like a builder? Probably. Yeah. I feel I feel like yeah, doing factory builder kind of stuff. So if you wanted to do like camel case string on an S string, you wouldn't add that or you would add that as a category because that's more just a value transformation. Right, right. That makes that makes sense to me. Okay. Although honestly, I probably do for something like that, I'd probably use like a NS value transformer. I'd create an NS value transformer and then open up a category method that just uses that value transformer. I think that's probably hmm. anyway, it, yeah, I'd probably still go through You could also do an NS formatter subclass for that yeah but yeah I, I feel like that that makes sense as a category method but like creating like a specific view for example like you wouldn't instead you wouldn't instead of subclassing ui view you wouldn't want to create a factory method on ui view that hands back like you know a section header right like you you want to use this one table section header Everywhere. And that's why you wouldn't want a category? I'm not sure I follow. I just, I feel like, I feel like at that point you'd want a subclass or a factory method on, on a factory class. It feels dirty to me for some reason to put that kind of factory stuff on UI view itself. Yeah. I think it's because UI view is so, can be used for so many different purposes right. at that point. It feels vague. Yeah. to UI view. Yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> Sorry. There's a photo of a duck saluting in Campfire. And it just says, I, I, Captain. <laughs> I gotta stop checking this one. <laughs> yeah, you gotta put that away. Uh, okay. After the, fa- after the face swap. <laughs> we just can't afford to have this open anymore. Oh man! Um, but do you ever use categories and go like, uh, "This doesn't feel like it should be a category." I just feel like people tend to abuse them. Only when it absolutely feels like this method should have been on this class in the first place is when I'll use a category. Like when I'm going and I expect it to be there, and I realize, "Oh wait, no, this isn't a thing." But I have like this object already has all of the information I need to figure out what this value should be then it belongs there. If it doesn't need to rely on anything else to get there, then I think it belongs in a category. Yeah. That's, I've never, I've never really thought about that, but yeah, that's where I draw the line. So like application specific stuff, like stuff that only matters to your application seems like it should be a subclass or a factory class or something, right? Like it should be its own specific object. But when you're doing like you're saying, like camel casing a string that seems like 
it that has nothing to do with your application. That is logic that really feels like it belongs to NS string and should have been there from day one. Exactly. Yeah. All you need is the array of characters in the string. Right. And foundation. So yeah, I think that belongs there. Do you ever use categories for organizational purposes? Like kind of the way like I love the way Apple uses categories, right? Like they will have in one header they'll have category, you know, every almost everything will be inside a specific category and that category is named for why it's there, like the group of things that it's supposed to be responsible for. They add stuff to like the deprecated category, you know? Yeah. It's kind of yeah. nice. Maybe not to the extent that Apple does it because they have a ton of methods to manage, but I do that in in a couple cases. So in the current project I'm looking at right now, on some of our core data model objects, we have a sharing category, and the category conforms to UI activity item source. So this thing can vend a, a shareable, you know, uh, or activity view controllers for that particular resource. So you want to share a photo, you just say photo, activity view controller, whatever, and just present it. So that hands back the actual action sheet, basically? The share sheet? Oh, no. Actually, there is no public interface. It's just conforming to UI activity item source. And so it has to implement these two methods, activity view controller placeholder item, which is called to determine the data type. Only the class of the return type is consulted. It should match what item for activity type returns later. And also implement activity view controller item for activity type. And that's for actually fetching the data after an activity is selected. And then in addition to that, we have a separate category on our core data model objects that have all of our custom logic so that we can regenerate the core data entities from the data model editor and not blow away all of the methods and stuff that we've added. Yeah, so you keep all of that logic in your categories instead of... Right, right. And if you're using something like Mo Generator, MO Generator, Mo Generator. then you wouldn't need this, but... If not, it's a really good idea to put all your custom stuff in a category. Yeah. Have you ever used Mo Generator? No, I haven't. It's kind of nice. I just started using it for a side project. What's your experience with it so far? Is it easy to set up? Uh, uh, documentation could use some work. There's kind of a lack of up-to-date documentation. There's a lot of references to like a Xcode plugin that hasn't been updated since like Xcode 3. So documentation isn't awesome, and it, it almost seems like it's, I don't know, purposefully kind of bad. I don't know. There's just lots of references to, like, I don't have any documentation, but you're looking over here at this Stack Overflow post where this guy just listed the, you know, all the available command line flags, and it's kind of like, that's kind of annoying. So then you're sifting through these command line flags, but you can do some really cool stuff with it, you know. Once once you figure out how it's supposed to work, and once you figure out how to set it up, it, it just you know I added it as a build phase, so it runs every single. Is that what you were going to ask me? How often do you run it? Yeah, I have it set up to run every single time I build because I don't know I have a 
modern computer and I don't care. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take that long to build the thing. So every time I build, I run Mo Generator and it generates all this stuff for me. And you know, it doesn't touch the the unprefixed subclasses. You mean that that's where your your custom stuff lives? If you're not familiar with Mo Generator, what Mo Generator does is it you point it at a Xcode data model or a core data data model. And you basically just type in a command line command, pass in your data model, and it generates two files for every entity. It'll generate a machine-readable entity, and a, which is a superclass of your human-readable entity, right? So like if I have a person, it'll generate <clears throat> underscore person, and it'll dump all of the stuff from the Xcode data model plus some kind of helper methods. It does add a bunch of, uh, not a bunch of methods. It adds some methods to, to the superclass. And then it also create just person and we'll set it up as a subclass of underscore person. So then from that point forward, you edit person. But if I change my Xcode data model, next time I build, it just changes the superclass, the underscore person. So if I change add a property, remove a property, whatever, add a relationship, it changes that in the machine readable. I mean, it's human readable. It's all Objective-C. But the, but in their kind of terminology, it changes the machine readable class, not my subclass, which is nice. Got it. But, it, I mean, it's essentially doing what you're talking about doing with a category, you know. I don't think that there's a whole lot of benefit to using mode generator i know that there's some classes there's some like i said there's some um there's some stuff that it helps you with like it looks like it creates structs for relationships so there's like a like a person person relationships and it you know unsafe unretained and a string brewery so it it creates structs of the actual properties Yes, but I don't understand why. So I guess, no, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I mean, I think it's so that you can do, like, value for key value coding easier, right? Because it it's holding that information, the, the string version of the property name, it's holding that in a specific place generated by your superclass. So you can just say, um, you know, beer at, or person attributes dot name. And that'll give you the string name. Oh, apparently that you can turn that off. Ah, I don't know. Can somebody who understands Mo Generator better email us buildphase at hotbot.com and explain <laughs> why these structs get generated? Because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, a few other things it adds is like a insert in managed object context method. So as a class method, right? So you just say person insert in managed object context pass in a um, context and it creates a new person inside that context for you adds entity name as a string like oh, at the class level it has a class method for an entity description so you can say entity and manage object contest and it'll return an entity description for person and then uh, it adds an object ID method at an instance level, so I can say, you know, person instance object ID, and it'll pass back the 
manage object ID. Mm, cool. So it kind of makes it a little more uh, Active Record esque. A little bit. Where everything's just on the the model objects themselves. When it comes to fetching, inserting, deleting. It also does. So, like, if I have a you know an address and the address has a zip code, I have to store that in Core Data as an NS number. So I have a zip code property, which is an NS number. Mo generator automatically generates like a zip code value method and property so that I can set zip code value and re get zip code value and it'll pass it back as an integer instead of as a NS number. That's cool. I feel like I should point out that Xcode has been doing that since like four two. We, when you did when you when you generate uh, an NS managed object subclass from an entity, you can choose to use uh, scalar oh. types. So instead of an NS number, it would be like an an integer sixteen. Yeah, that's what this is doing. So that's baked right into Xcode now. I typically don't use it though because if I'm consuming a JSON API, when it parses that API, even if it is an integer, it's going to get boxed into an NS number. Right. And so then assigning it is just a lot easier. What are your what are your um, your classic categories that you can't live without? In this last project, I so I I wrote a blog post a while ago on our blog um, about tinting UI images to specific colors. So like you you have an image and then using some core graphics, you can tint it with a flat color and preserve that alpha, or tint it with a which like that'll tint it as a flat color or like essentially pass in a grayscale image and just tint a grayscale image to a specific color while still retaining the alpha. So I actually have a, a tint category on UI image that I used a lot in this last project. And that's kind of like one of those, you know, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail thing. Like the second I, the second I got, the second I figured out how to tint images is just like, if I, it's like, I don't want, give me one image asset. I will tint it everywhere. <laughs> like I don't want, I don't want ind- individual image assets anymore. That's silly. Use that. And then I extended that to work with UI buttons so that UI buttons could, you know, basically all they would do is pull their background out, tint it, and then set it again. Those two were super useful. We had one, um, a positioning one on UI view that added fake properties basically for like frame bottom, frame height, frame right, frame width, frame X, frame Y that allowed you just to get to all of those. So if I wanted to set the bottom of a frame, oh no, sorry, you can't set the bottom of a frame. If I wanted to set the height of a frame instead of having to, you know, go through all the nonsense to do that you just say you know view dot frame height equals x which is really nice i'm slowly coming around on those yeah using set x set y although we were having a discussion about it then after and we were talking about possibly like internally we were having a discussion right and we were talking about possibly using uh, more of a macro approach for that versus a method just to stay in line with like the cg rec get height CG rec get width kind of stuff. How would that work? Like a like a CG like a you know TB rect set X. You know what I mean? Oh, I see. 
and then you pass in you pass in erect and the new x got it and it it's totally just a semantic thing but what it would feel a little more in line with kind of like those cg functions you know right one i always add is a class method called nib to ui view because in my in my projects yeah i because i always like naming my nibs exactly after the class um, I, have a, I do a similar thing in storyboards where the storyboard identifier is always the name of the class as well. Yeah. So on UI view controller, I'll also add a storyboard identifier, which just does a, and a string from class self class. That's nice. But yeah, the nib on UI view is super handy. I recommend doing that. You and I both use for UI colors, right? For doing like, um, like a palette kind of a thing which I was kind of surprised I heard from some people because I, I kind of like backhandedly mentioned it in that same tinting blog post. I kind of like offhandedly mentioned that in my palette category, you know, I'll set this red color as ThoughtBot red. And then some of the feedback was like, oh, that's a great idea, having a category for colors. I was like, wow, I didn't think that was, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was kind of surprised that that, that wasn't done everywhere because it it kind of falls in line with what we were talking about before about how it's kind of towing the line a little bit between needing a factory of its own. I think for me, because there's already like blue color, black color, red color, those factory methods on UI color, I think it's reasonable to add those directly to UI color. Yeah. I'm looking at the UI color category I have in this project and we have, well, number one color with, integer red green blue alpha nice which just lets you put in the values without having to divide by 255 to normalize it between zero and one which is handy so that that takes is that takes between zero and 255 and then does the math for you to bring it down right. to a zero to one nice yeah and then uh, default background color default cell selection color default text color yeah default dark text color right and it just goes on and on and then you can configure those if you need to, or right. that just, those are just getters, right? They're not, they're just factory. Right. Components. But yeah, but you could also chain it with like color with alpha component. Got it. Drop the alpha. And then in addition, we're using a custom font. So I have a category on UI font as well. Yeah. That's the next thing I was going to say. Default bold, default semi-bold, default semi-bold italic. So all the different types and variants. And then each one of those takes a size argument. And those are not prefixed. They are not. I figured it's unlikely that Apple will ever add default bold font of size <laughs> to UI color when it already right. has right. system. Right, right. Categories are also helpful on uh, container view controllers. Because if you want your child view controllers to be able to reference it like you do with a nav controller or a tab bar controller, you just put something, put a category on UI view controller with a getter for that, and then it just walks through the parent child relationships and in your controller and just returns the top level. Oh, perform block on NS object. That's handy. Yeah. At times. That's yeah. the one that performs a selector. So we just have perform block, which just runs the block. The perform block after delay is just calling perform block, passing a copy of the block as the object and bouncing the delay through. And then variants for background thread, main thread, etc. Simple for like one-off little uh, method invocations where you want to do something on the main thread. Like you get a notification on a background thread. You just want to kick it off to the main thread. 
What are your thoughts on using associated objects with categories? I've never needed to do it. I'm sure I will at some point. So I can't really speak to that. Have you? Yeah. I, I actually, in my last project, I got a code review where there was an associated object or they were using associated objects and I just, I didn't like it. And so I sent it back and then like a month later, I <laughs> I was like, crap, I have to use associated objects. <laughs> but it was, it was actually for that form binding stuff I needed to do. Again, it, it, it was to, f- I, I felt dirty when I was, you know, importing the Objective-C runtime, but I needed to add essentially next key view functionality. So in on the Mac, every NS view, I think, has a next key view property that is just what what should I make focused when I hit the tab button? So you can just tab through the entire interface. And I wanted that, and I, I think it's frustrating that we don't have that on iOS because if I have a form, how many times have you implemented the should, you know, text field should return? And it's just like, is it this text field? If it is, just pass the focus to this text field, you know, and that sucked. So I added a, basically a next key view to UI text field, really. I just I didn't add it to anything crazy. Just a UI text field that just did a a get and a set for the associated object. And then I had a navigation, it's oddly named, but I had like a form nav- keyboard navigation delegate that was the delegate of the text fields and was implementing basically every time in then my did my text field should return method just became if text field dot next key view text field dot next key view become first responder right got it so if there's an x key view set just make that one the first responder else return yes and that worked super well but i just had a thought i wonder what happens if you're using a bluetooth keyboard with ios and you hit tab while a form is focused i think it's the same thing as in the simulator which is that it actually does jump to the next text field how does it know i don't know but even if even if you don't have that set up even if you don't have that return stuff set up the the tab button works in in the simulator so i'm assuming it works on device too it may not work on device. It may only work in the simulator. I haven't tried it. Could probably try it without just run your app on device and hit tab on the keyboard and see what happens. Oh, does that work? It, I think so. If you launch an app and it's tethered to your device, you can you can use your keyboard? Maybe not. I may be making that up. I'm probably making that up. I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely making that up. <laughs> I got really excited. <laughs> Sorry. Well, so where do we fall on prefixing? Like if we were to decide they hear a thoughtbot. What are we going to do about categories? Do we prefix? I think I would, except for specific use cases like the palette stuff. Odds of odds of Apple introducing a thoughtbot red to UI color, which would be awesome. So Apple, if you're less, if you're listening, like that would be great. <laughs> Shoot us an email. We'll send you those color values. Although I do also have a category for like external brands, 
I have a category that has like Facebook blue and Twitter blue because I was using those to tint buttons and I didn't want to have to keep remembering what the RGB values of those were. I could almost see them adding those. You know what I mean? Like it wouldn't be too far off. Maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe they do it in like a category that comes with the social framework or something. Possibly. Anyway, like, but I have, I even have those prefixed in, in this. In my opinion, I think that categories that are included in something we're open sourcing should be prefixed. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But in our projects, we probably don't need to do that. It's, it's a toss up. Yeah. Like I said, like I probably will do it just because I like that mental separation of being able to look at a method and say, this is a category method, you know kind of a reminder that I control the implementation there more than anything. Right. Should we ask people to send in their favorite categories? Yeah. What happens if you hide in like the debugger or sorry, in like instruments, if you hide system calls, you know what I'm saying? Like if you hide system libraries, but it's a category method on a system library, does that method get hidden? Do you get what I'm asking? Yes. I want to say no. It probably pops up as being inside the, you know, NS object or UI view parens, my category. Yeah, I think that's what happens. I, I, I don't know how it knows that. But I, I, I recall spending a lot of time in the instrument app when I was building the calendar and I had a lot of categories on NS calendar, NS date components, NS date that I was trying to tune and they showed up and by de- and by default I'd go over and you know say like objective C only hide system libraries, invert call tree all that stuff and I seem to remember them showing up so I, I think that works cool anyway sorry that was just a last minute thought <laughs> no that was a really good question if there's any categories that you really love that we haven't mentioned, we'd love to hear about it. So email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or hit us up on Twitter or app.net, just at buildphase. Also, if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. It's really the best way for us to reach more listeners. Show notes for this episode can be found at thoughtbot.com slash buildphase slash 14. And this show is edited, produced, and recorded by Mike Manor.